Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation. Podcast. Podcast with host Eddie Trunk. Hey folks, it's Eddie Trunk and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for streaming, thank you for subscribing, and thank you of course for listening wherever you are in the world doing so. And as I tell you guys all the time, the interviews you hear on this podcast, they originate on my Sirius XM radio show if you're in the U.S. or Canada. Please join me daily, Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time for the live show on 106 volume, nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern, or you can get full shows, audio, video, and much more on the SiriusXM app. If you are in the U.S. or Canada and you are only listening to this podcast and you don't get the radio show, you're only getting a fraction of what I do on a daily basis live on the radio so hope you come on board and join us at Sirius XM. So this week we've got another producer special for you. I love doing these in-depth interviews with legendary record producers. You get stories that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Insights you're not going to hear anyone anywhere else, especially from the artists themselves. And it's absolutely great to talk to these guys. And the one I have for you this week is one that I did a few weeks ago and originally aired on my volume show. And it's with a guy that is just an iconic figure in the world of music production in the 80s, especially. And that is Michael Wagner, who's worked on records. Well, he makes Master of Puppets. He also worked on classic Megadeth records, Dokken, White Lion, The list goes on and on of the artists that Michael Wagner has worked with. Ozzy, No More Tears. There's just so many, I wouldn't even know where to begin. We get into a lot of it in the interview you're about to hear, which is quite extensive. It took up a whole two-hour radio show, and really there was so much more we could have gotten into. The other thing that's interesting is Michael recently retired from producing music. So this he was looking at really is kind of like almost an exit interview from the industry. I've known Michael Wagner for a really long time. 
Uh, you'll hear some of that story in the interview. And he's a great guy and has worked with so many incredible bands. And you'll get some of those stories in the interview coming up. So enjoy it. Michael Wagner, legendary producer, legendary stories. You're going to hear, well, as much as we could squeeze in in the more than 90 minutes that we had with him. So let's get to it right now on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Well, I've been waiting a long time to have this gentleman on this show in my producer spotlight special. We've had a, a great long list of legendary producers, and this man is certainly one of them that joins us today. As I was saying earlier, if you are a fan of hard rock, or metal music, there is no way you don't have a record in your collection that was worked on by Michael Wagner. And he joins us right now on this special edition of Trunk Nation. Michael, thank you so much, my friend, for the time. How have you been? I've been wonderful. And uh, anytime you need me, I will be there. Well, I appreciate it. We go back a long, long way, and we'll get into some of that and some of those stories, no doubt. But, you know, Michael, usually when I start these interviews with producers, I start, uh, you know, with the earliest days, how they started, but and we're going to do that with you. But before we do that, I want to get to the current because, as you said off the air just before we started, you recently announced your retirement. How did you reach that decision? Well, you know, it was uh, um, I was figuring that 50 years of being in the music business was long enough, and now I have to catch up on 50 vacation. So I, in in March, I uh, retired. I, I decided to retire, and uh, um, you know, sold my studio and basically got out of it. You know, you were working in Nashville. You relocated from L.A. to Nashville a number of years ago, and what I think is interesting about that is the. It seems like the entire rock scene has relocated or not, not a large amount of people in rock have relocated to either places like Las Vegas or certainly Nashville tops the list. But you were kind of, you kind of made that move ahead of the curve when it came to rock-based people. Talk about that decision when you did it and when you exactly did it to move from L.A. to Nashville. Well, we did uh, 1995. We did a record, the last record with Udo in Accept, uh, Predator. And we did that, and Wolf had already moved to Nashville, so he lived here. So we did it here in Nashville. And, uh, you know, L.A. was getting worse and worse and worse in terms of, like, traffic and, and crime and too many people. And so I'm in Nashville, and I go, why am I not here? So I made the decision in uh, uh, 1996, uh, I actually started moving here. And as you know, a lot of people in the rock industry followed you. I, I think probably when you got there in 96, rock wasn't nearly as prominent in terms of musicians based there, right? Right. And so was sushi. You know, there was two, <laughs> two sushi restaurants in all of the town. And, and by now you can find one on every corner. I don't think that's my fault. But, um, yeah, you're right. There was a, a couple of musicians here, but over time it's, Almost everybody I knew moved here, and still a few people that I didn't know, like, you know, they, they just ended up here in Nashville. Kind of cool. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly Nashville known for country, but in terms of rock, I mean, there's just a ton of rock artists there now. And I always think of you as making that move and kind of being ahead of the curve on that, because I remember when I first heard you you relocated there, I'm like, I wonder what kind of business he's going to get there for rock. And now it seems like everybody I talk to is there uh, from, from the rock industry has moved there. So you definitely were ahead of the curve as far as that's concerned. So you already mentioned Accept, and I know they loom large in your history in getting started. And I always like to ask all the producers, Michael, about the story of getting started, how you first cut your teeth in doing this. And I know that traces all the way back to you actually being a member of an early version of Accept, right? That's correct. Yeah, I grew up actually with Udo, the uh, original singer of Accept. We went to school together since we were six years old. And we were like closest friends. We were hanging every day and, you know... uh, at some point, we did a band, and we didn't have a name for it, so we called it Band X. And, uh, um, you know, we just never, ever played anywhere except for in the garage. But that later on, uh, Udo and I, we found the name Accept. And um, we go, well, that's a lot better than Band X. And so that way it turned into Accept. At the time... I was drafted to the army in in Germany, and uh, they put me 350 miles from home, which made practicing kind of impossible. You know, so uh, I kind of like left the band there, and and Udo stayed, and uh, um, then Wolf got into it, and uh, uh, Peter and, and Stefan at the time, and it turned into what was known as the Accept at the time. By that time, I was, uh, you know, not even playing guitar anymore because there was no time. And I kind of, my whole life, I liked electronics and I also liked music. And then uh, in Hamburg, where I lived at the time, I got a chance to put that together. And that was a, that was a company called Stramp. Uh, from Struven Amplifiers. And so um, I started working there, and I walked in the first day, and it was Richie Blackmore. And I go, well, this is kind of a cool company. And and so I asked him if I could work there, and and he said, yeah. And he goes, when do you want to start? I go, tomorrow. (laughs) And that's how it came together. And that company, uh, I went to uh, uh, night school and got my degree in electronics, and, you know, and there was only four people in that company. So you got to do everything. And in the end, when I was uh, uh, finished night school, and all, I actually designed electronic equipment. And, and uh, um, you know, that's how I got started. Did you, so you go into, so you basically stopped trying to be a musician yourself because you're drafted into the army and then you come out of the army and you start working for this company. But did you, did you have a mentor or somebody that showed you the ropes in working a console and recording and engineering and mixing? Was there, was there early studio experience where you actually learned that from someone? No, the thing was that we uh, built mixing consoles and, and stuff at that company, guitar amps and mixing consoles. And, uh, in the very end, we had like a little eight-track studio to demonstrate our gear. And, you know, that's where I basically learned the ropes. There was never anybody there that showed it to me except for what I occasionally picked up in, 
uh, when we like visiting other studios or something like that. But uh, with that little A-track studio, I started learning what to do and what to, what not to do. And at the end of that, uh, in 79, there was a band called Tennessee, and they were a German country band, kind of god-awful band, but at least those guys all had a little bit of money, and I had a little bit of knowledge. So they asked me if we could build a studio. So we built Tennessee Studios in Hamburg, Germany. And that's how it all started in the beginning of when you have a studio, you don't have too many clients, but you have a lot of manuals. So, you know, I grabbed the band from next door and they could rehearse in the studio and I was like recording it. And that's basically how I learned. What was the what was the rock scene like in, in Hamburg and in Germany around that time? Was there a good scene in terms of local bands beyond Accept that you were involved with or that you were seeing? Yeah, there was actually a whole bunch of bands and, and uh, um, you know, they all played in clubs, little clubs. And, uh, you know, it was beginning, well, end of 79 and, and uh, uh, beginning 80s, basically. And uh, I met Don Dawkin playing a club across the street from the studio and I got to record it. Um, while he was playing and, and, you know, that's how we got to know each other. And, uh, right after his live show, he came in and we did a whole bunch of demos, which were the very first rock demos I've ever recorded. Um, they later on got stolen and bootlegged and, and they went to number two in England <laughs> and, you know, and, and Don goes, well, you got to come to America and make a hundred bucks an hour. Well, that definitely took a while, but, uh, you know, in the, in the end of 79, I went over to America and visited Don. And uh, uh, I loved it so much over there, Redondo Beach and that whole area, that I made the decision, so this is where I want to be. And I, I followed that up in 1980. Yeah, you know, so your history with Dawkin is interesting because, of course, Don is American. Don is from Southern California, but he actually originally went over to Germany in search of a record deal, right? That's what he was doing there. This was even before George Lynch, right? That was before George Lynch. And it was, uh, he was not even, well, Don was always looking for a record deal, but he came over to do a tour in Germany. The owner of the club that was connected to the studio uh, brought him over and got him a bunch of gigs. So he was touring Germany uh, always in between. And I was mixing the demos while he was out touring. And uh, that's how that came together. Why, then, Michael, uh, why, why would somebody like Don Dawkin, who would have been, who was completely unknown in America at that time, how did he have any sort of following in Germany to be able to tour there as an American artist in Germany that early on? Well, number one, the tour was like little clubs. You know, it was not like a massive tour. And Don didn't have any following, and he got the following through touring mm. uh, the little clubs. But the guy who brought him over... Uh, the club owner, uh, he liked his music, and, and he goes, well, I pay for your tour. You come over and you play certain uh, uh, bars and, and, and clubs and stuff like that, and that's how it started. Um, 
their voice that was not based on a certain following that Don already had, he got that following during that time. Interesting. And it was it was not uh, it was him, Juan Crucier, and Greg Pecker. Greg Pecker was the drummer. Juan was the bass player, and it was Don playing all the guitars and singing. So. And that actually recently, some of that music actually recently came out, right? Because that was, I know Don put out a collection of early demos recently. Yeah, then it's actually a re-release because it got, uh, because we didn't actually pay much for the studio time at Tennessee. Uh, you know, they thought all that material belongs to them and they bootlegged it and, and, and put it out. So it has been released in 1980 already. And like I said, it went to number two in England then. And then now Don put everything back together and re-released uh, a lot of the stuff that we did back then and more modern stuff. So in your history, I know that Dawkins and Accept uh, play a huge role because obviously, as you mentioned, you started with Accept in an early version of that band, and then you went on to work on a number of Accept records, which we'll touch on. Same thing with Dawkins. You have this early connection with Don, and then you do these early demos, and then that leads you to working on and producing records like Breaking the Chains and uh, Tooth and Nail, which you mixed, and other records in Dawkins' catalog under lock and key, of course. What, what was your, um, I know you saw Don in his earliest days playing all the guitars, but what were your thoughts about the evolution of that band and then when Lynch came into the picture? Because, you know, no, notoriously, I mean, Lynch is a guitar hero, but also he and Don are like, uh, you know, what do they say? Oil and water, you know, they just don't don't always gel. Yeah. So so was that going on even in the earliest days when George first came into the picture since you were there? Well, apparently there was some stuff going on here in America. Um, you know, Don went back to America, of course, and then he called me up and, and goes, I'm coming back over. And I want to do some demos uh, at Dirk Studios. And uh, uh, George wasn't even there. But as far as I found out, is that, that Don took some songs that George and I think Mitch had written and used those songs here uh, to do the demo with. And uh, the very first demo that we did was actually uh, uh, Bobby Blotzer played the drums on it. You know, and, and uh, um, they were done at their studios. And then Gabby Hoffman, Gabby Hauke at the time, which was Wolf's wife, she took him and uh, sold him for him. So he got some money for it. And then we had the opportunity to record Breaking the Chains. And when he came back over to do that record, um, he brought George and a... Uh, bass player, and who else was, uh, and Mick, Mick Brown, yeah. So uh, those are the people that came over. I forgot the name of the bass player, and we later on replaced all that bass with uh, Peter Baltus playing on Breaking the Chains. Most people don't know that either. So Peter replayed the whole bass on Breaking the Chains, uh, and at the very end, Juan Crucier came over and sang some uh, backing vocals and stuff like that. And then they went back to America. Uh, and I think it took another two years. And then Elektra bought it. And then I went back over there, remixed a lot of the record. We replayed some solos, re-sang 
uh, a song with different lyrics, and that was the record that finally came out in America. And then, of course, Jeff Pilson came into the picture uh, around the time of the second record. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious just in you know because there's so much to talk to you about, Michael, and even in the time that we have, I know we won't get to it all, but just in terms of rounding out Dokken, do, do you feel like there's um, – because of the – and look, the guys have talked about it themselves, the volatility in that band between uh, George and Don. Do you think that it was – you, do, you, do you ever think about uh, what could have been with them as far as a band? Because when you think about it, they actually broke up initially at their peak. They broke up coming off of the Monsters of Rock tour in the late 80s and you know being on a huge stadium tour at the height of their popularity where they just imploded. Uh, I know a lot of fans feel like they could have had a much bigger and better run if they could have held it together. Do you feel that way? Um, I think they could have. I mean, Don and George are both very strong characters with very strong egos. Now, exactly what is going on in between the two, I don't know. I just know that the, the little bit of animosity that was going on in there was actually not really bad for the record. You know, the, 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 the fighting and the discussing and was positive for the songs. They came out and had a little bit of a harder edge and, you know, but I mean, obviously, dealing with it at the time uh, was not a lot of fun. But I would think that if they would have stuck together and pulled on the same string, uh, they could have been very successful. You've recorded successful than they were. You've recorded a ton of incredible guitar players in your career. What was it like working with George and and recording with him? Where do you see where do you see him in the history of of guitar in terms of the people you worked with? Well, you know, George is amazing to say it right off the top. He, he's, he's definitely in my top five. And um, but when we did Breaking the Chains, I had no clue who George Lynch was. You know, and we just recorded and did the best we did the best we could and got the best sound that we could and. And uh, uh, but I could tell there is something different. I also was not that familiar with Van Halen at the time, which there is certain similarities. And I found out later from George that uh, there was a bunch of guitar players that played the Van Halen style, but they couldn't after Eddie got a deal. So nobody could play that style, you know, with the hammer-ons and all that stuff anymore. Uh, and they did a little bit of it. But uh, um, they couldn't go full that route. But George was always, uh, as a guitarist, he was really, really easy to work with because he had great ideas. He could play anything you asked him to. And, uh, um, you know, and he, he always had his own, you could always tell after like one bar, oh, that's George playing. So yeah. uh, that was very nice. You uh, and just to because I just want to spend a few minutes on Accept here because you have a again a long history with them actually being as you said in an early version of the band with Udo and then going on to work on 
uh, everything from breaker to restless and wild to mixing balls to the wall, which to me is one of, still one of the greatest sounding records. It just sounds incredible when, when you hear that cranked up to this day. Russian roulette. You've got a long history working with Accept. Did did you right. uh, did you feel was were you were you uh, regretful when they went on to have some some success that you you stepped away from the band and you were working as a producer instead of actually being in the band? No, because I I uh, I never was that good of a guitar player, and Wolf like beat the pens off me in that regard. <laughs> but but you know I loved my job as a producer engineer, and so I could do that you know and do it with the bands that I loved as well. So I was pretty happy. Was uh, was it a challenge to work with Accept to get them to break in the in the U.S. audience? I mean, I know that. Udo struggled with the English language early on. I know that Wolf's wife, Gabby, ended up writing some of the lyrics. Tell me about uh, you know trying to get them or, or work with them to appeal to the American market. I mean, they certainly did break through here to some degree, not nearly to the level of a band like Scorpions or something, but they certainly made their mark. Was that a challenge? And I imagine that was a goal as well to try to get them to break here. Well, at the time, that was not really that much of a goal. At the time, it was, hey, let's make the best record we can make. And yes, there was the slight problems here and there, especially in the beginning uh, with uh, English language and in the vocals. But, you know, Udo worked hard on it and we, we got it, even though you can still hear the accent, but you can, to the day, <laughs> hear that with the Scorpions as well. So, um we, I don't think we had America in mind when we were recording those records. We just wanted to make a great record. And, you know, one one final thing on this. It, it's interesting to me, that, and, and Wolf Hoffman told me this, and I couldn't believe it, that he, he said that Scorpions and Accept never, ever toured together in their entire history. And now when nope. I think about it, you as a young producer coming out of Germany – uh, the one act that's not on your resume that I would expect to have seen would have been Scorpions. Did you ever get close to working with them? No, well, there was never. I worked with them for maybe a half hour when Peter Dirks had something to do in the studio and they were recording. So I sat at the console for about a half hour, but I wouldn't call that working with them. But, you know, but I don't understand why that, that was the case. But I always was very, very busy doing stuff. And, and you know, Scorpions, which do, the Scorpions, you're gone for six months, you know. And uh, at the time, I don't know. If, but I don't think it was ever thought of that we could work together. I don't know because I worked with Accept or I have no idea. But you're right. I never did. Do you think there was an early rivalry, more of a competitive thing between the two bands behind the scenes, maybe, that you were one camp, they were the other camp, and maybe that's why they never even toured together? Do you think that there was something like that going on? I have no idea. I, I never realized something like that. Um, there was no open uh, uh, rivalry, but, you know, it could have been could have been internally that the people were uh, the musicians were thinking that way but i never realized it 
Yeah, and and also Scorpions, I think, had a full production deal with Dieter Dirks, who did most of their records. I think that he actually had a piece of the band, if I'm not mistaken. So that may have prohibited them from working with somebody else if they wanted to. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, I had heard that along the way. So we just scratched the surface talking a little bit about his work with Dokken and Accept in his earliest years. Michael, before we move on to a couple other records, I'm just looking down your discography, and the very, very first one listed is somebody named Franny and the Fireballs. We didn't <laughs> – it's the first one on your resume. Real quickly, what was Franny and the Fireballs? Franny and the Fireballs was a, a band. They were like a Bill Haley cover band. And and uh, they looked like that, and they, they they played like that, and they actually played uh, up in the club. That was the, the club was called the Sounds Club. That was connected to the studio. So I recorded a record with them that was uh, played out in that live club. And that's why it's the first one on there. Well, it's, uh, there you go. That's where it all started. All you know, you, we can talk about all these great hard rock and metal bands, but it all started with Franny and the Fireballs. When it comes right. to Michael Wagner, it's great that you still have that on your resume. So there you go. <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you about uh, Motley Crue because when it comes to Motley Crue, you mixed the uh, U.S. or the re-release version of their first album, Too Fast for Love. There are two versions of that record. It was originally released independently, and then they came to you and you remixed it for Elektra Records. Tell me about getting involved with, with Motley Crue, which at the time was a brand new band. It's actually the other way around. Oh, okay. I was, yeah, I was a, a good friend with, uh, I got to meet uh, Mick Mars when he was in Vendetta and uh, helped him, and Udo was there as well, uh, record and mix his demo for Vendetta. And then um, I went back home, and in 1980, I came over here on vacation, and, and Mick goes, hey, you got to help me with my new band. It's called Motley Crue. And I go, it's called what? <laughs> so uh, he goes, and then he took me by, uh, the studio, which was called Hit City West. It was on La Cienega Boulevard, and I think originally it belonged to um, Wallace. What, what, what's his first name? Matt Wallace, the producer? Yeah, sure, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, that was his studio, uh, which he later on told me when, I was, when he was doing uh, uh, another record, and uh, said, you know, that was my studio where you mixed the first Monty Crew. And when we had like four days, they had already everything recorded, uh, uh, except for one piece of cowbell uh, in Livewire that I recorded with them. And then Mick introduced me to the band. And to me, they were absolutely crazy. You know, that was something that you didn't see in Europe. And... Um, so we had four days to mix the record on an analog console, and we did. And then uh, that was for Leather Records. And uh, Alan Kaufman, I think, was the guy who was handling that. And then uh, they got a deal with Elektra Records. And uh, then Roy Thomas Baker actually remixed the whole album. And on the, the Leather Records version only has uh, a thousand copies. So and I, I have three of them. So, well, good for you. So I have <laughs> yeah. I have the leather records version. I always had 
the story reversed. So Roy Thomas Baker did it when it came out on a major label, and you did the original version of it, which has since been re-released several times by the band. And there are right. many people, as you know, who actually prefer your version, the original mix. Yeah. Were you yeah, disappointed? And- were, were, I, I imagine that's got to be difficult for you doing what you do as a producer, an engineer, a mix guy, that when you work on a record early on, you step out on a band early on like that and take them on, and then it gets to the next level, and then they decide to bring somebody in to, to mix it, to remix it. I, I know there's probably nothing you can really do about it, but it's got to be a little bit disappointing. It, it, yeah, I mean, I didn't really realize all that that much. For me, it was like a favor to mix, to, for me to mix the record. And then I went back to Germany, and, and I didn't even realize that it got remixed at the time. And, you know, Roy Thomas Baker, uh, I'm a big fan of his, you know, and, and so uh, he's kind of an idol of mine. And then he went and remixed it, uh, and I didn't probably hear it till about a year later. So I, I did not, I wasn't really crazy about the remix, uh, and I know the band wasn't, and and so, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any opportunity to be disappointed, to say it that way. It's also interesting to me that, uh, that Mick Mars was your connection into Motley Crue and that he brought you in because, as I'm, I'm sure you realized early on, even back then, that Nikki Six was the founder of the band. When you first met Nikki, did he come off like that? Did you feel like it was that he was really the, the, the guy behind the whole thing? Um, it, it seemed like he had like some of the higher position, but at the time when I mixed the album, uh, there was not much of that going on, you know. I didn't know about how influential Nicky was in, in selling the band, in the in the appearance of the band, and so on and so on. I was just a friend with uh, Mick Mars, and, and that's how it went down. We're jump, or I'm, I'm jumping around in the timeline a little bit here, but I don't want to forget to bring this up. Mick Mars, and I've been in touch with Mick, and I love Mick, and I, I know all the Motley guys, but Mick is... Uh, just a sweetheart of a guy. And I know that for the last six, seven years, uh, it may be longer, Mick has been working on a solo record and he's been in touch with me about it. And I know he's gone through a lot of ups and downs with it. You at one point, I know he's worked with a lot of different people along the way, but you at one point were producing that record. I know you're now retired, but do you can you update us on where things were left with you and Mick on his record? I worked, I worked with Mick on that record. Um, for I worked on a couple of songs that Tommy Hendrickson from uh, Alice Cooper yep. uh, had produced, and he had me mix those. And that's how I got back together with Mick. And, and uh, uh, at some point, <laughs> Mick contacted me and said, hey, do you know any good in- engineers? I go, well, I could do it. And uh, uh, so that's how we got together. Meanwhile, he had moved to Nashville and uh, so we met together and it, there, there was not really much of a record there. It was all little pieces and riffs and, and stuff like that and then we tried to make it songs and, and uh, uh, you know, and that, that started like three and a half years ago and so I, I from that point on I was working with Nick, he had a studio I had my studio and so I was working down there uh, every single day and uh, you know and we got somewhere with all that 
And then uh, in 2020, COVID started. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so that means that and the, the record was almost recorded. I think we were missing four guitar solos or something like that. And when COVID started, I kind of like stuck at home. And, and, and Nick went and uh, uh, had some people trying to mix the record, and but he wasn't quite sure about which were the right files and, and stuff like that. So he's still working on that. I don't know. I, I'm not in that circuit anymore. And, and uh, uh, you know, we're still great friends, and, and but I'm not working on his record anymore. I, I also brought in uh, Paul Taylor from uh, Winger, Mm-hmm. And Paul helped him write songs and, and put everything in, in, in good arrangements and stuff like that. And now the record started making sense. But then after COVID started, you know, I, I kind of like got out of there. And uh, uh, But he's still working on it. I don't know what the status of the record is, you know. Yeah, you know, my and, and Mick has kind of admitted this to me, and I think it's kind of understandable. Mick has never really done anything outside of Motley Crue. He's never set up his own stuff. He's never written things entirely himself and taken it all on him or, or just, you know, it's never been on his shoulders to do this. And he expressed that to me. It just, it, it, it kind of became daunting. I think so many different people in his ear telling him what he should do, the direction, how he should do it. And I think when people are used to being in a band and then they step out and try to do something on their own, it can become a bit overwhelming and you start trying to maybe I'm just speculating here, but in the little bit I've talked to him about it, it seems like that was going on. He's just really sort of trying to figure it out. And there's a lot of people telling him which way to go and he can't figure out what to hone in on. Right. And he has an idea of what the record uh, should be, what it should sound like. And, you know, he's an amazing guitar player, but on the other hand, he was in a band that sold millions and millions and millions of records. So he has this, pressure to be super successful, you know, because he comes out of Motley Crue. So now if he puts something out that doesn't live up to that quality, and that's what he's, I think, afraid of. Mm. That's why he keeps checking. Is that good enough? Oh, what do I, should I do here? Should I do that song or not? And and that just keeps on, keeps going on instead. And then meanwhile, Nikki and, and, and Tommy and even Vince have, have records out uh, uh, that are more or less successful, but they have records out that are good. And, and you know, that puts a certain pressure on you. Uh, finally, on Motley Crue, was there ever any talk of you doing anything more with Motley, seeing that you had such a such early history with them on the very first record? Did they ever, did you ever come close that they approached you about working on any of their other records? No, not on the record. We, uh, you know, at, for a little while there, Motley Crue and I, we had the same manager, Doc Taylor. And uh, so I got to do the best of with them and, and you know, whether it was uh, uh, some of my stuff on there. And, and somehow record companies have the ability to lose recording tapes. So the tapes were gone, so we couldn't remix anything. Uh, but they, they could use some of the original record on that one. And then we overdubbed. They had some, some live songs on there, which we overdubbed some tracks on. And, uh, but that was it, basically. That was, uh, what was it? Decade of Decadence, was that the right. one? Right, yep. Yeah, 
that's that's one. And then other than that, no, never. I was never asked, but uh, at that point, uh, you got just got to keep in mind that the decisions were made by people other than the musicians. Right. You know, now it's man- management and it's these people, and and uh, so they might have not been aware of me as much as the band boss. Right, right. I want to ask you about Raven because that's a band you also have a big history with and did a number of records with, and a band that unfortunately didn't break through in a big way in the U.S. I remember as a kid, you know, I saw Raven and Metallica touring in the clubs around New Jersey and New York, and and they were either co-headlining or sometimes Raven was headlining. People thought Raven were going to be as big as Metallica or bigger at one point, and obviously that didn't happen, but a great bunch of guys, and I'm just wondering what your recollections and thoughts were about Raven having done so many records for them. Raven was actually, you know, the the name Double Travel Productions was basically based on Udo and me having that production company. And then the first record we did together was Raven All for One, and we did that in England. And uh, uh, it was crazy. We did like 14 songs in 11 days. Uh, uh, complete, you know, and that was just a crazy bunch of uh, amazing musicians, a lot of laughs and a lot of like fun stuff. And uh, um, I think Udo ended up doing uh, a song with them at the time. And then uh, we always, you know, got to, got along very well. And then, and at some point, Raven contacted me. I think it was 13 years later, and they said, hey, we want to do another record. Now that's one's going to call uh, One for All, and can you do that? And, and that's what we did. We did that in my studio here in Nashville, and uh, uh, that was basically the second one, the second album that I did with them. And then I met him again on the Monster of Rock cruise uh, a couple of years ago, and they asked me if I wanted to mix the, their new record, and and I started on a couple of songs, but the record was just super crazy, super <laughs> crazy. I I didn't even understand that a drummer could play what that drummer was playing. <laughs> you know, unbelievable. And and so uh, I had a little bit of a hard time mixing it, and and they needed the record out, so it got mixed. But I think that they re-recorded some stuff. And it got mixed by somebody else. But, you know, we're still great friends and, and, and uh, uh, hang together when they're ever there in the area. Let me ask you about working with Striper, because you did uh, Soldiers Under Command, which, again, is an incredible re- sounding record and an incredible record in general. And I think, you know, Striper is a band because of the religious stuff, I think somewhat gets overlooked as the musicians that they are and the singers that they are. What were your thoughts uh, in getting involved with Striper and how that came about? That was uh, before we even did uh, Soldiers Under Command, we did uh, a single together in 1984. And and uh, uh, that was in, a, in another studio. And side note, that studio didn't allow smoking and nobody in Striper smoked at the time. So I gave up smoking from 60 cigarettes to zero in one day. Oh, so, wow. Well, that was yeah. a good, that was a good indirect, that indirectly was a positive thing for you. That's for sure. Absolutely. I'm still not smoking and, yeah. you know, probably saved my life by now. And, uh, 
Yeah, so we went into a studio, did a single, and shortly after we went and started uh, Soldiers on the Command. Striper are amazing musicians. Striper was like, you know, normally you set up the drums, you set up the microphones, you do a take, you take it home and you listen. And, uh, you know, I was at the St- Amigo Studios and they had that warehouse where we recorded always the drums. Um, and then it sounded just amazing there. At seven o'clock in the evening, yeah, I think we got the sounds. Let's just do one take, take it home. And then, and then Robert says, no, I want to do my tracks. Seven o'clock in the morning, he was done with all the tracks for that for that record. It was wow. unbelievable. You know, he pretty much played everything the first take, and uh, you know, and, and and Michael as a singer is amazing, and 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 all as a guitar player as well, and us as, as well. You know, so they were all really good and and really easy to work with. The the Christian thing, I mean, yeah, if you want to be Christian, fine. You know, and and that didn't interfere with anything. I think. Yeah, I mean the thing the thing that I think of with Striper is the vocals and the harmonies, and of course Michael's voice. But when they all sing together, that had to be incredible to capture that and to be able to record those guys because all of them could sing so well. Michael, of course, of course, out front. You know, Michael often says. He, he loves the fact that people talk about his voice, but he feels his guitar playing gets overlooked a little bit because of it. <laughs> he wants more attention as a guitar player, but I think I think vocally, uh, them coming from singing in churches or whatever, it's amazing that up against, you know, very heavy music. I always thought that was really an incredible thing that they do. Yeah, amazing vocals, and especially Michael is like, you know, very, very, very easy to work with. And, and you, as a producer, you have to ask once in a while, can you sing that a little higher? Or do And he always delivered, always. You know, and you can tell it on the record. It's, I mean, there's some amazing stuff on there. Yeah, there really is. Uh, I, there's other, so, so we were talking about, um, we were talking about the situation with Motley Crue and that first record where you came in and uh, did the initial mix, and then it was remixed when it was picked up by a major label. Uh, a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, tell, tell me about kind of a similar story to some degree when it came to Poison and the Look What the Cat Dragged In record, or, or maybe reverse scenario, but explain that to me because you came in and mixed that record kind of, there's a story about that. Can you share that as, as far as how you got involved with yeah. Poison? Of course, yeah. Uh, it was produced by Rick Browdy, who was a good friend of mine. And uh, he came to me and he goes, look, we got $5,000 or we can give you a point. Do you want to do this? Do you want to mix this record? And I go, let me hear it. And and the recording was at the, at the point was like such that I go, you know what? I take the five grand and be done with it. So that's what I did. And to the day when I walk into the dressing room with Poison, they go, oh, there's Michael. I take the five grand wagon. So just to be clear on that, so people understand, in a di- instead of taking a percentage of the record sales, you opted mm-hmm. for a flat fee of $5,000 to mix the record because from what you heard in the record, you didn't expect it to go anywhere. Right. 
<laughs> and and you know that that's probably a three hundred thousand dollar mistake. But you know, at the time, that's what I was thinking. That was my time to make mistakes, anyway. <laughs> right, and five thousand. Yeah, I mean, you 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 never know. I mean, thankfully, you can laugh about it now because you've certainly had enough other successes to make up for it. But it had to kill yeah. you as you watched that record rising up the charts and all those hits and all those songs on MTV to say, "What the <laughs> hell was I thinking here?" You know, five grand and I'm I go, done. <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> but they were a crazy band, and and you know. Even if it's not for the music, they were selling records for their attitude and their party party uh, stuff that they did when they were playing. And people like that kind of stuff. And sometimes they just don't really listen to, you know. And by the time they were on tour, they were better musicians. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was one one mistake I made. I you know I never ever regretted. Uh, any mistake in that direction. There were some that was actually a lot bigger, but uh, uh, so I never. I did what I did. That's what. That's what it is. You know, I got to do Ozzy. So, <laughs> and you got to do Master Puppets, which we're going to talk about as well in a second. But yeah, you live and you right. learn. But every time you hear "Talk Dirty to Me" or any of those Poison hits, uh, that's Michael Wagner mixing them, and he got a whole five thousand dollars for the whole job. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but at least you can laugh about it all these years later we'll be right back with more with michael wagner right after this on the eddie trunk podcast addiction plays hardball he would hit me with these verbal attacks i just said to him i love you so much you're such an amazing person i can't take this ride anymore it was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's get back to more with Michael Wagner on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, I teased this one as we were heading into... Uh, the last break, and that is Master of Puppets by Metallica, landmark record, one of the classic metal albums of all time, really a big breakthrough record for Metallica, and you mixed that record, which is now more than uh, 5 million copies sold in America alone. Michael, what were your thoughts about getting involved and when you heard Metallica and you were approached to mix Metallica? Because what we've talked about with you so far is, of course, you've done some heavy stuff like Accept, but you also worked with Dokken and Poison, Motley Crue, things like that. Hearing Master of Puppets and the emergence of thrash, speed metal must have been, for you, pretty pretty surprising, pretty jarring. What were your thoughts about it, and, and how did you get approached to work on Master of Puppets? Well, I was, I was uh, contacted by the management, which was uh, Bernstein at the time, who also did Def Leppard and Darken and and those and that that how that connection came together. 
and he just asked me, and, and you know, uh, do you want? I did not know too much about Metallica before that, and uh, I just knew that they were a pretty, pretty heavy band, and and so I go, sure, let's let's do it. And you know, when I sat together with a band, it turned out they had a very distinct idea of what they wanted that record to be like. You know, and there, there, it was down to the point where, what's that green light? Is that reverb? Turn it off. Mm. You know, it, it was down to that. And they were like very, very clear about what they wanted that record to sound like. But it was recorded really, really well. And so it was fairly easy for me to, to mix the record. And, and you know, uh, it by, by a distance, the most heavy record I had done at that point. And you're right, yeah, you know, listening to Dawkins and harmonies and this and that. But this had something into another direction. It was just, it would just grab you, you know. It's like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. So, and, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to do this, especially now as it's in the, uh, uh, what is it called, the Library of Congress? Yeah. Uh, to preserve the sound. And I mean, how much more can you get as an engineer producer than that? You know, you know, you know, know what's interesting though, is you talking about this being heavy and you trying to get a handle on it and, and, and listen to how it was well recorded. And then the band being very involved in, in the mix, you know, a similar thing happened with Eddie Kramer with Anthrax because Eddie Kramer uh, ended up producing and working on the the record that's the the landmark Anthrax record among the living. And I've talked to Eddie about this. I actually had Eddie on this very show doing what we're doing. And when he got a hold of hearing among the living, and they got to the mix, that they they he butted heads with the band a little bit because of the same thing that he had a bunch of reverb on there and things like that that were of that time, and the band were on his shoulder saying, "No, we don't want that." So so I mean, I imagine as a as a guy because you you've you have a big career as a producer, but also you became known as a guy really well known for mixing, just coming in and mixing records like you did on Master of Puppets. Were you okay with the artist being in there? I know that some mix guys, the, the, you you keep the people out of the studio while play it for you when it's ready and then you could give me notes. Or were you okay with artists sitting right in there with you, talking to you as you're working? How did you like to work in that capacity? Uh, it was fine. I mean, they had, they had their opinion. They had their request of month, what not, not to do. And those requests were based on previous records that they didn't like at all. And, and or previous mixes that they didn't like at all. And they were okay sitting there. It's just like once in a while it was, you know, it was uh, James sitting on my left side and Lars sitting on the right side. And, and then Lars is going, all of here is freaking guitars. And then from the left side, the freaking drums are way too loud. And I go, hey, guys, you want to talk to each other? You know, and, go, and I go, what about the bass? He's not here. <laughs> That's really what happened, you know. And, and I had to maybe sneak in tiny little things uh, to make, in my ears, make it a little bit more accessible. But do not piss off the band with stuff that they didn't want. You know, and in, in the end, we, we all agreed and liked what, what we heard. 
And of course, you would you you also maybe because of working with Metallica, staying in the heavier zone. You did some stuff with Megadeth, including "So Far So Good." So what? As a producer and mixer, and obviously a history there between Megadeth and Metallica with Mustaine. Right. What was uh What was it like working with uh you know Mustaine notoriously? could be a, a difficult guy at times and and went through his issues what was it like working with dave back then it was uh, the whole thing came together from uh, jeff young who was the second guitar player in the band at the time and there's stuff going on that i had no clue about apparently they were mixing that record in new york while i was mixing in la and i always got one song on multi-track tape to mix. Uh, and now I forget, I think Paul Laney was the one mixing the record in New York, and he had no clue that I was remixing it, and I had no clue that he was mixing it as well. Oh. So, you know, I was mixing at the Enterprise here in, in L.A., in Burbank, and uh, they left me completely alone. They would come in 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, listen to the song, to the mix once, yeah, sounds fine. Don't, don't want to keep you. See ya. You know, and amazingly, uh, and obviously there was uh, some substances involved at the time with them that, uh, uh, you know, they didn't want to spend too much time in the, in the studio. Uh, Jeff was hanging out once in a while, but that was that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, But that's how it came together. There was no, it was the opposite of what Metallica was. Metallica was there every minute of that we were in the studio. Negative came in for, I guess, 15 minutes, listened to the stuff, approved it, and then did, you know? So, and uh, the recording of Megadeth was such that I did have to use a tongue reverb to make it, uh, you know, possible. And and later on, when, when Dave went in and... Uh, remixed all the stuff that they've done uh, on that record he has a comment saying well you know uh, I was always wondering why Michael had used so much reverb and then I listened back to the multi-track tapes and now I understand he goes <laughs> mm. Mm. so but I mean there was not much more I had a, a connection with Jeff and worked with him on his records later on but I was never hanging much with Dave you know Right, right. So so you do this heavy stuff. You Now you get your toe in that water working with Metallica, working with Megadeth. And then this is where you and I connect personally and, and meet for the first time. And that's in, in 1987 with the band White Lion, who I was friends with before they were even signed and had put out one record independently. And then you come in and begin to work with them on what was their debut U.S. major label album, and that was Pride, which turned out to be a huge record and sold two, three million copies and had a few huge hit singles on it. I know that you've told me in the past, Michael, that of all the incredible guitar players you've recorded and worked with, that Vito Brada was among your favorites. Tell me about working with White Lion and recording them and what your... I mean, you talk about a band uh, with unfinished business and that could have been so much bigger if they would have stuck, hung in there. Uh, that, that to me, is the story of White Lion because it was an amazing moment when it happened, but it unfortunately ended far too soon. Yeah. Uh, White Lion is what I would call my kind of music. 
So it's very similar to what Darken did at the time with the harmonies and melodic vocals and, and you know, great songs. And, and Vito, when I say George Lynch is one of my uh, top three guitar players, Vito is in the top two. So uh, Vito was just simply amazing. And he's another one that could play all that Ben Halen stuff for days, but didn't because Eddie was doing it. Mm-hmm. And but Vito was just like, you know, we, we figured out, okay, that's the amp we want to use. And, and, and then he would play it and would practice it, and he would come in and just play it. For instance, the solo on Wait, uh, we were tracking drums. And you know when you're tracking drums, uh, uh, you know, you're playing the drums, and that's what you care about. Everything else is just being played at the time. And we played the whole song, and Vito played that solo that you hear on the record while we were tracking drums in one take. It was un. Unbelievable, unbelievable, and and I go Vito, that was it. That solo is done. He goes, oh no, no, we have to play that again. And and, and I go, I don't think we can ever play that solo again, and we never did. So so, so the solo, so the solo on weight, and a lot of people point to that solo as just being absolutely brilliant, and it is. But the solo on the hit song Wait was actually done like as an, it wasn't even the actual take it was actually just done while you were tracking drums yeah the take was done while we were tracking drums we had a little amplifier uh that had a direct output so you know you wouldn't make any noise with you plug it directly into the tape machine and that's what we did and and then he just played along with the guitar played the rhythm but by the time the solo came along he played the solo and and i'm sitting there having chills and i'm looking at him and i go Holy moly, that is amazing. And, and yeah, that's, that was played during the drum tracking. Do, do, do you, uh, you, you know, I'm in touch with all these guys still, and they're all still dear, dear friends, but do, what, what do you think, what, in your estimation, we all know the scene changed. We all know that uh, very a few years later after the Pride record, you, of course, did the next record, Big Game, as well. Then they worked with a different producer on their final record, uh, Main Attraction, and then they broke up. Never to be heard from again. I mean, obviously, James has done a lot of things and is still out there. Play- James is in Megadeth again right now and plays with John Fogarty. James ended up being the guy that's probably the the most active in 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 rock music still today. Uh, Greg does some things. Uh, Mike does solo work. Vito completely out of the business for, I mean, he's the guy, Michael, I get asked about Vito almost every day by a rock fan. And I tell him this, you know, that I, I get asked all the time by him and we're still in touch. And there's so many rumors out there about him, which are not true, but, but what do you, what do you think? What's your observation about why that can't come back together again and why Vito is so checked out? Well, I think there was a little bit of the George Don situation going on at the end. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, Mike and Vito, I think, wrote all the songs. So they probably got more money than everybody else in the band. And, and uh, uh, um, the one thing that I know is they made a lot of money. And Vito kept all that money where, while the other guys would like spend it, you know, right. as much as they could. So at, at some point, Vito is there and has a restaurant, he had a hotel and he has this, this 
and he has the money. He doesn't have to do it anymore. And, and the whole music business turned into something that was not that nice anymore. And I think he just, you know, doesn't want to do it anymore. I mean, I would come out of retirement and do a record with Vito any, any second, you know. And, and, uh, but I think the relationship between the band members, which all of them in, that, in themselves were amazing musicians, you know, where that relationship was not that good. Yeah, you know, and and still to the day uh, is not that good. I, I I ran into yeah, I ran into James actually on the Months of the Rock cruise, and uh, uh, you know he was like, no, I don't want to hear from those guys anymore. So there is something going on that's probably very hard to put back together. Even though I would think, yeah, they should do it. You know, well, yeah, or even if Vito just played and made a record of his own, I think. Uh... I, I don't think I don't think he himself even realizes the impact and how many people still talk about him. I I tell him when I talk to him, but he just to to me he strikes me as a guy that was never really a lifer for 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 this. He wanted to make his mm-hmm. mark. He made a mark on the Jer- on the Jersey New York club scene with a cover band before White Lion, and then I think he wanted to make his mark, make his money, and he just you know that you know as better this as well as anybody, Michael. There are guys that are in this for life and are lifers and it's all all they'll do at any level they don't care and then there's other guys that make their mark and have some success and just go on to a different phase of their life and i think that's how Vito is wired i i think he saved his money he made his money uh he still lives mm-hmm. in the house he grew up in and he is fine with all of that and he's not a guy that's wired to to run around and play clubs in the middle of the week right exactly and and uh I talked to him. Uh, you you did a show and you had him on the show, and I called him up right after that, and and he com- completely freaked out that he that we got to talk, you know. But we got to talk, and even though it was briefly, but uh, uh, he made clear, no, I don't want to. I don't want to go and play guitar anymore. And and uh, there, even though there were not uh, any reasons for it, but. Uh, I think he's done, you know, and and even though it's ah, man, I wish, I wish we could do some more music together. Yeah. And, and like I said, he is definitely uh, uh, one of number two uh, uh, favorite guitar players for me. You know, or Eddie being the first, and and uh, that's really out there. And, and and he made a big point in my life, and we. We're talking about cars. We had, you know, with Mike, I would talk about bikes. And then with Vito, I would talk about cars. That was also the first question when I'm on the phone. He goes, so what are you driving? They <laughs> 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 go, yeah, I probably drive a Honda now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the, the reason why he might have been saying that, and I've told this story before, because around this time when you were making Pride, and there's a great photo of me in the studio, I think you sent me of me and Vito, actually. Yeah. But I again, yeah. I was friends with these guys in 87, and they were local guys to me, and I was one of the first to play their early record on the radio, and uh, they, I went out, and I wanted to sign them, because I was working for a label at the time, and the label passed, and then they went to Atlantic, and the rest is history, of course, but we remained friends. And uh, I remember coming out there when they were, when you guys were recording, and we would all go to dinner, and you, we would go to Tower on Sunset, 
And I tell people this all the time. You would go in there and buy a copy on release day of every new record that came out. And then we'd get yeah. in your Rolls Royce and go to dinner. You were driving a Rolls at the time. <laughs> Those are the days. That was L.A. in the 80s, wasn't it, Michael? <laughs> yeah, it was. You drove the Rolls to your airplane, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was a good, right. good times. And it was good to be a fly on the wall with you back then and, and, and the band as well. That was uh, great, great stuff. Uh, all right, so we got to – here's what I want to do. I want to do a quick break here, and then we're going to come back and do one more segment and a lot to cover in this segment, but we need to pick it up with another band from the Jersey, New York scene that we all know and love so well, and that's Skid Row, which Michael plays a huge part in, and we'll do that yep. right after this. Uh, we were talking about White Lion, a band from the New York, New Jersey area, and shortly after White Lion, Michael worked with another band that made a huge mark coming out of this area of the country where I reside and another band that I knew from before they were even signed, uh, before they even had Sebastian as their singer. I used to see him on the Jersey clubs. And that, of course, is Skid Row. Uh, Michael produced the first two Skid Row albums as well as a later record called Revolutions Per Minute and also a covers EP. Michael, tell me about uh, how Skid Row got on your radar. I imagine at this time uh, when the first Skid Row record was done around 1988, I mean, you, you, are, you are the guy when it comes to working with rock and metal bands. You are one of the guys for sure in terms of producing. I imagine you're at a point now in your career where you're having to pass on some things and can start to be a little bit selective about what you do and don't get involved in. So tell me about Skid Row coming to you or, or vice versa, how that happened. Well, it was uh, Skid Row uh, was not signed at the time and uh, Atlantic called me and said, well, we got this band and we want to fly you out here and check if you like and if you could do something with them. You know, and then uh, they fly me out there, and I think I forgot what which club it was in, in Jersey, and they played there, and I see the band playing, and I see Sebastian, and I go, this is going to be amazing. And so Doc McGee, the, the manager at the time, asked me, well, what do you think? Are you going to, do you think you're going to be able to do something with them that, that can put them out there? I go, absolutely. You know, and, and I talked to the band, I talked to Rachel, which we are still close friends to the day. I mean, he lives a half hour from me. And, and uh, uh, you know, and we kind of had an understanding. And we kind of had, when you do, when you produce a record, you have to become a band member. Otherwise, that's not going to work. You have to be in the band, basically, in order to understand how they think what they want to do, what they don't want to do. And that happened right away with Skid Row. You know, Sebastian was just in the band for, it was, I don't know how long, but I think it was just a few months at the time. And uh, uh, he kicked ass life. And, and so I didn't see any problem. I was looking forward to working with a band like that. So, and then talk to, to Doc, talk to uh, uh, Jason Flum, it was at the time. Uh, and yeah, we agreed. Yeah, let's do something. And then Atlantic signed them, and uh, um, you know, we got to do that record in 1988. Yeah, I imagine I'm taking a guess here because there was a club in Jersey they played quite a bit in Newark called Studio One, and I, I don't know if that was the club you were at, but I I recall 
seeing them there initially before Sebastian was in the band. They had a singer before him. So you didn't see them with the original, the singer prior to Sebastian, a guy named Matt Fallon. You didn't see them with him, right? No. Okay, the reason no. the reason I bring that up is that Matt was a good singer and, and was good in the band, and I would see them with him quite a bit. But everything changed when Sebastian arrived. The songs were done. I mean, the songs from the first record, they were doing with the other singer. They, they had been written. But Sebastian, yeah, written, yeah. Yeah, Sebastian's arrival changed everything. Even at that level on the Jersey club scene amongst the locals, it was like, well, you got to see this kid that, that, that they found that, that is singing. And I, I have a tape of Snake and Rachel on my radio show at that time. And I was talking to them and they said, yeah, we're trying out this new singer. He's going to play with us a couple gigs. He's from Canada. His name is Sebastian Bach. And I mean, the impact he had and, and, and the, the immediate impact he had on that band, because they were around on the clubs here in New Jersey for, for a while. They were, you know, they were knocking around a couple years, but it was everything changed when he, he arrived. And it sounds like he made a big impact on you as well. Yeah, he was definitely um, when I think about Sebastian, I think he is a very, very good entertainer. You know, mm -hmm. and and he had a ton of energy. He, uh, yes, the songs were written when when he joined the band, but he had a certain way of uh, 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 representing those songs and doing his thing and basically making them his own. And and that was you know that was uh, uh, the the main point I think. And obviously, he was a great looking, great looking uh, performer and and young and the girls like him and, and, you know, and so, yeah, to me, that was okay. That is an outskate row. What, what about, what about vocally? I mean, recording those vocals, you know, right. It's the 30th anniversary of slave to the grind right now, which of course you also produced and it's an amazing record as well. And you, you know, I just saw him do it uh, with his own band now and singing quicksand Jesus and some of that stuff. I mean, when you were recording him back then and he was going for some of that stuff vocally, were you pushing that from him or was that something that he was just volunteering and bringing naturally? I was always pushing him. I was, I, I'm actually always pushing any singer and, and, but Sebastian would deliver certain, you know, certain attitudes in, in in the songs and and those attitudes were not always in tune because he basically brought across what what he wanted to across uh, uh, with uh, with the vocal itself so we had to fix some of that stuff and and that that was okay and you had to uh, you have to uh, uh, think about there was no auto tune or anything at that time you know so uh, um it, it took a little bit longer to do the vocals, but his performances, uh, you had a problem out of 10, 10 uh, performances for one vocal line to pick the one that you wanted to use because they were all so good, you know? And, and so you used the ones that you liked the best and fixed little things that you had to fix, and that was it. And I think the rest of the, you know, I think Snake and Scotty and, and Rachel – uh, and Rob, even his performances on those records. I mean, I think I, I think those guys. I think Snake and and uh, 
and Scotty are un- super underrated players. I mean, I love their playing, and Rachel, I think, is a phenomenal writer and player as well. Uh, working with them early on like that, did you did you pick up on that as well? Did you pick up that they had really honed their craft? And I imagine huge jump from album one to album two in terms of writing and playing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, they was never a problem with those guys in the studio to record something, you know? There was maybe times when they were trying something. Like, I want to try this part on here. So we had to do a few tries to do something, but they always delivered. They always delivered, and by the time uh, uh, they were happy and I was happy, the song, that part was perfect. You know, and, and, and Rachel... You know, he's an amazing bass player. And and uh, once we had the bass sounds figured out, and he was happy with it, he would just go for it. And it was different. You know, I get a lot of comments on the Slave to the Grind and the original record bass sound, and people say, can, can you get that for us? And, you know, uh, they just love it. A great, a great musicians. And also, uh, there was a deep friendship between all of them and and that makes a whole different situation you know they're all pulling at the same string and 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 have the same ideas and when they're writing especially rachel and snake there, there is something there you know to the day uh you know i think rachel is one of the best rock songwriters and and you know, that that was the same thing back then. And when that all comes together, you know, you, you have, as a producer, you have it fairly easy. And it was, uh, people ask me, what's your favorite record? I go, all of them. But the first Skid Row album was the favorite for me to record because it was so crazy. They were all so crazy. And they would never influence the work in the studio, you know. But we had a ton of fun. And you intentionally, on that first record, you, you took them to somewhere in Wisconsin, right, in the middle of nothing, so they couldn't get in trouble, right? You, you took them in a, where there was nothing around to get distracted by. Right. The, that was one reason. And the other reason why I talked to Roy Thomas Baker, and I go, what, uh, uh, I want a big, big room for recording the drums, which was the thing back then. And number one, he says, rent a forum. But that was not really uh, <laughs> suitable for this. And then he had recorded at, at that studio, Royal Recorders, and he goes, they have a convention center right next to the studio where you can record the drums. And that consen- convention center had 260 cars in that room where we did the drums the next day. So, yeah, that was a big reason that we picked them. And they had great microphones. And, you know, yes, it was out there. Uh, but it also was like uh, summertime and, and, you know, it was a uh, spring break or not spring break, but there was a break for the schools and colleges with all the girls hanging out. And so it was good. Yeah, yeah I bet it was. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me just in closing out on Skid Row, another band that you could easily make the case that if they would have hung in there with the original band could have been a very different story for for you there's a lot of that we're talking about white lion with mike and Vito disconnecting we're talking about skid row of course sebastian and the the other guys disconnected even going back as early to accept 
Udo and the guys uh, no longer together. Doc and George and Don on and off again, on and off again. Does it bum you out as a guy that's worked with these artists and had made these classic records with them that that these guys can't find a way to to mend these bridges for the for the for what the fan most of the fans would love to see and just for the betterment of their career or do you understand it given the that you were in there with them creatively do you, do you understand when these divisions happen or do you like most of the fans kind of say why can't they just get it together <laughs> Right. I mean, just imagine uh, you do a record, you do a good record, you sell, it sells a certain amount of numbers, you go on tour, and in Skid Row's place, there was nine months of one tour, one long tour opening up for Bon Jovi. And you are on tour, you are in that tiny little tour bus uh, in there with all those people. Just imagine if you would be in there with one other person for nine months. There's gonna be there's gonna be discrepancies going on, you know, and and and, and so uh, then every little thing turns into a massive, uh, uh, hateful situation. I do understand it. Uh, I do not like it, of course. And and you know, I would love to keep working with the same band, and 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 if they are successful and 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 can play, I I would love it, but. It's just not always the case, you know. But Skid Row held out for quite a while, longer than other people, you know. And uh, so, but in the end, it happened, and, and they couldn't get along anymore. And, of course, we should mention that you ended up working with those both camps, actually. You produced solo record for Sebastian and also did a record with uh, Skid Row, which at that point, uh, I think there's some great stuff on it, a record called Revolutions Per Minute, but at that, which really, and Rachel has admitted this, was really Rachel's record. Snake was only partially involved because he was doing other things, and they had a different singer in Johnny Solinger, who sadly passed away recently. But you, 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 uh, you were open to working with both camps after the, the, the breakup of the original band. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, uh, unfortunately, Sebastian went away that, that, you know, it was not the same anymore with him. It was hired musicians, and it wasn't really a band anymore. And, and, but, but, you know, like I said, Rachel and I and Snake and Scotty, we're, we're close friends. And, and uh, uh, you know, we do stuff together even outside of this. I did a whole record with uh, Skid Row, was it in, in 2020? You know, and, and uh, for some reason... They ended up not liking the song as much anymore as they did when we started the record. And and it, through the whole COVID situation, it was all weird. It was all very weird. Rehearsals and pre-production and all that wasn't done the way we were used to it. And, and, and maybe it didn't quite come out the way we were looking for it, you know. But there's a whole record that we did together. And... and uh, uh, don't know what's going to happen with it. So, but we're still we're still together. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let me hit you with a few other things with the time that we have left here. Uh, Extreme, 
the porno graffiti record, their second record. Talk about incredible guitar players. Nuno Betancourt, another absolute monster. Uh, that record was their breakthrough record, predominantly for a song that was not really indicative of what the band was all about, and that was more than words. But other stuff on there, too, like Get the Funk Out and uh, Decadence Dance and so many others. I mean, an incredible record. What was your What was your experience like working with Extreme? Uh, I I heard Extreme uh, from the first record and stuff that they did. And then I talked to A&M and said, if, you ever, if that band ever wants to do another record, I would be very much up for doing that. And then that's how it came together. You know, A&M goes, oh yeah, that'd be great. And then uh, 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 when you listen to Nuno, he doesn't need a producer in his mind, but uh, it's better to have somebody that pulls on all the reins. Nuno is amazing. He's an amazing guitar player. And the, when he, they came in, to the studio to do this record, that record was pretty much done. You know, they had all the songs written, they had, they had all that arranged, and so I didn't have really that much work besides getting the right sounds and getting it all recorded right. Uh, but it was pretty much done. And and so um, that means Nono might have been gone around later and saying, well, he didn't do anything. But what you do as a producer is sometimes not as obvious, you know, holding all the stuff together. But uh, it, it became a really successful record. We had uh, Pat Travers singing the pre-chorus to get the funk out. And, and uh, uh, you know, it, it was a, a great album, one of my favorite albums. You know, I couldn't let this conversation go by without bringing up Ozzy. Uh, you mix No More Tears, which is just a an incredible sounding record sonically. You know, I I was at some shows, uh, some big concerts recently, and No More Tears, uh, they played between bands over the PA, cranked up. I mean, sonically, it just sounds unbelievable, that record and that song in particular. And then that led you to producing on Osmosis and also working on some of the live stuff. What was uh, what was your experience like working with Ozzy and recording Ozzy and, of course, uh, Zach Wilde as well? Well the, well, the label came to me and said uh, they had the song, No More Tears. And then they gave me that song, and they go, can you do better? It was already all mixed. Actually, it had been completely produced and mixed already twice. And then uh, they gave me that song, and can you do better than that? I go, of course, because you always can, because you hear something that's already being made, and <laughs> you can always do better than that. So... Uh, I remixed it. They loved it. You know, and Ozzy said to me, I did not want to like it because we had worked on that record so long, but I had to admit that it was better than what we had. So, and then I got to remix, uh, I got to mix the whole record. And then uh, with Osmosis, uh, the label came to me and said, we want exactly the same record as No More Tears, which was quite reverberly and big and, you know, so we started on that, and we did seven songs, and I actually finished seven songs. They got mixed, uh, and and not not mastered, but mixed. And then the label came to me, and they go, well, now we want it to sound like Soundgarden. <laughs> and I go, you know, uh, Soundgarden wants to sound like Ozzy. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> and that means they wanted it completely dry and in your face and 
you know, and uh, we took a break. And when we came back from the break, they said, well, we have Michael Beinhorn uh, producing the record and, and who did Soundgarden, you know. So, I mean, for the label, that was the logical choice. But uh, uh, Ozzy hated it when it was done. You know, he, 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 what he calls the demos is what, what I produced and mixed. That is, uh, he goes, that was a hundred times better. So, uh, I don't know. And it's out there somewhere as the demo sessions or something like that. And, uh, um, I, I did not like what was on the CD in the end. So, um, that's how that all came together. Yeah, 92. I mean, that's that was the year and that's when everything changed for all these bands that we're talking about. That's when I, I say a gate kind of came crashing down and suddenly, you know, Nevermind came out and everybody wanted to either be that or the old bands needed felt like they needed to sound like that. And I think a lot of them made a mistake doing that. They should have stayed the course, but everybody gets wrapped up in the moment. I imagine for you, that had to be really tough as a producer because I talk about this all the time. People talk about how grunge came and changed everything for the bands. It wasn't just the bands that was impacted. It was the producers, the photographers, the A&R people. All of a sudden, everyone was considered old news and we needed to go with the guy that was doing that. It was a ripple effect through the whole industry, not just the bands. Did you experience that as a producer? Absolutely. It was it was down to the point where you know, people would come to me and we had to take our white line platinum albums off the wall because when the new bands come in, they say, you work with them, you know? And, and so everything was affected and it was in the late 80s, it was get Michael, get Michael, get Michael. All of a sudden it was get anybody, just not Michael, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It went down to that and, and I still did a, a few records and, and and uh, uh, but there was a time, ninety four, ninety five, when I thought, well, maybe I should like do something else, and I started doing video and 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 stuff like that, you know. But then I went when, when moved to Nashville and got my studio here, and that created a whole different situation. Now a record wouldn't be five hundred thousand dollars anymore, you know. It would be a, a, a tenth of that, and so. I still had work and stuff to do. So, Michael, uh, I've got about five, not even five minutes left here before I have to end the show. But And I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about Testament and Alice Cooper and many others that are on your resume, so many others. One of these days what I want to do is, uh, you know, as long as you're in Nashville, I'm going to get there and do some shows from the studio. I'd love to have you back in and sit in and maybe take calls from the audience because you're so great on the air and your work is so great and it's touched so many people. So, so we need to do that at some point. But I, I want to ask you this just in wrapping up because I'm not going to have time to get to specifically some of these other bands, but... Saigon Kick, another one I love that Jason Beeler is going to kill me for not bringing up to you. <laughs> but I, I, love, uh, I love those those records you did with them. But of all these artists you worked with, is there one you always wanted to that you never were able to, that you came close to or the near misses or maybe one you passed on that you wish you didn't? ACDC. I always wanted to work with ACDC, the original ACDC, because that's pretty much my favorite music you know so i would have given everything to work with those guys was there any approach to, to, you had the opportunity or it just never came your way 
I did get uh, asked by uh, Atlantic at the time to do flick of the switch. But for some reason, I was, I think I was involved with RV or something like that, had something else and I didn't have any time. So, uh, or no, wait a minute. It was except I was in Germany doing except. So that didn't come together. And, and I would have loved to work with that band. Did you ever pass on something that went on that you didn't think was think much of that, or you were just too busy to do that you saw go on to to have great success? Uh, appetite for destruction. Oh no, that's worse <laughs> than taking five grand on the first Poison record, Michael. That's, that's exactly true, you know. And and Alan Niven was the uh, was the manager, and he asked me, and uh, it was basically I get a paint job for your Cadillac if you uh, mix that record for me. And I go, man, there's a lot of drugs involved. I don't want to do that. And so I passed on that. I passed on Soundgarden. What is that? Uh, Black motor finger or something like that? Bad motor finger, yeah. Bad motor finger. I passed on that one too. But if you think about that, if I would have done those two records, there would have been no other producer in LA <laughs> for rock and roll. <laughs> you had to leave something for other people. So, you know. Oh my God. So. But appetite's got to, th- got to keep you up at night. Do you ever hear welcome to the jungler, sweet child of the mind and say, I would have done that if I mixed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, it wasn't the case, you know, like I said, I worked with Ozzy and, and Alice Cooper and, and other bands and, uh, that uh, satisfying my request for like working with bands, but that would have been a big one, yeah. Yeah, we should mention you did a couple records for another band that I love, and so many others do as well. King's X, you did some yeah. some fairly recent records with them, a band that I knew when they first uh, got signed, having worked for their label. So the 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 again going through the resume, it's just absolutely unbelievable, and there's so much more I want to touch on at another time. But we got to a lot of good stuff in this one. Anything you want to close out by saying, Michael? Anything you want to mention? What do you plan on doing in retirement? Are you going to just travel? Are you going to just relax? Are you staying in Nashville? What's your plan? Well, I would like to mention one record that I did that is my absolute favorite record that I did, and that was with a girl called Ariel. And and uh, she is a, a singer-songwriter, and we did a record together, and it's absolutely my favorite album that I ever produced. Wow. And uh, uh, there is not uh, any plans. At some point, we're going to look at, at, at Italy and see if there's a place that we want to retire at, but at this point, I'm here for at least a few years, you know. All right. Well, I got to get down there and come see you, and we got to do more. But, yes, uh, I see Ariel here on your on your resume in 2018. You did a Tesla record I like a lot called Simplicity that you mixed. There's just so much stuff, again, that I didn't get to touch on here that I, I'm looking through of all these other names and things that I, I'd love to get into. But, unfortunately, we are out of time. Great White, you did a ton of stuff with Great White over the years as well. Uh, listen, yeah. listen, my friend, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I can't thank you enough for the time. And I, I wish you a, a happy retirement. I know we'll be in touch. And when I get down to Nashville or if you should get to New York, uh, please come and, and visit and let's get together on the radio and do a, a live show. I'm sure the audience would love to call in and talk to you. And thank you so much for doing this. Anytime, man. I would love to. 
Well, that was absolutely awesome. I thank my friend Michael Wagner for being so generous with his time. We could uh, easily do so much more with him because the stories are endless. One of these days when I get to Nashville, maybe we'll get him in the studio, let you call in and talk to him if you are a radio listener. Of course, the interview you just heard, again, originated on my radio show, Trunk Nation, on Sirius XM 106 volume. I hope you join me for that each and every day, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. If you're in the U.S., the replay is 10 to midnight Eastern, or you can get anything you want, anytime you want, on the Sirius XM app. And again, come on board with us at Sirius XM and listen to me every day on volume doing Trunk Nation if you aren't already. Hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I enjoyed doing it. I look forward to doing more with Michael down the line. Be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, eddietrunk.com is the website. And hopefully catch me on the radio every day, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 106, Volume. Thank you so much for listening to everybody in the U.S. Next week, we'll bring you something cool for a Thanksgiving post-podcast day. Anyway, have a good weekend then, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Yes, on Thanksgiving Day, we'll bring you a brand new podcast as well. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.